Well, good morning and welcome to Mission Sunday. Uh, Like Ryan said, uh, this is a month when many churches set aside to talk about uh, the plight of the persecuted church. And so we're going to do that today. And that video trailer we just saw is from a documentary called Love Cost Everything. And uh, I remember when Kelly and I first saw it, I was overwhelmed uh, by the pervasiveness and the intensity of persecution around the world to today. It's easy to miss uh, for us Americans. And so for all of you kind of left-brain thinkers out there, uh, I have some statistics for you. 100,000 Christians die every year for their faith in Jesus, nearly half of the city of Chandler. 200 million Christians are persecuted for their faith in Christ every year. And four out of five acts of religious persecution is directed towards Christians. And this next one is astonishing. In the 20th century alone, 40 million Christians have been martyred. 40 million, which is more than the previous 19 centuries combined. And, and I think when we look at these statistics, they're, they're kind of overwhelming and they're staggering, but I think one of the common responses we have is that we look at these numbers and we understand intellectually that this is a problem, but maybe we don't feel the full weight of it emotionally. You see, I think there's a disconnect going on here that, that keeps us from being able to relate to and support the persecuted church. And I think this happens for, for several different reasons. One is just a sense of remoteness. I mean, we don't actually know these people personally. If our kids were suffering persecution for their faith, we would feel that in our bones. But, but we don't know these people personally. So, so that creates a sense of remoteness. Another reason that we don't really relate to and support the persecuted church is helplessness is helplessness. Christian persecution is, is kind of overwhelming. And, and after all, we all kind of have our own little corners of the world and our own problems. And so sometimes it's difficult to kind of get a wider uh, scope of the world and to see what's happening in other nations. And so this sense of helplessness of what could I really do to affect this is something that a lot of us feel. And then finally, complacency. Hearing these numbers makes us aware of our own indifference and our complacency. And so our ignorance becomes an excuse for not dealing with these things. And and maybe some of you could kind of relate to some of these sentiments. I know I certainly can. I've I've felt all of these things at different times. But what I want to do as we open up this morning is, is read to you two passages that I think will help us get a little bit of perspective on the persecuted church. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 26 through 27, and then we're also going to be turning to Hebrews 13.3. If you don't have your Bibles, the text uh, will also be uh, on the screen above. 1 Corinthians 12.26, the Apostle Paul writes, If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. So there's this interconnected body of Christ that stretches outside of Chandler into the whole world. And then similarly, Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who have been mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So because of this connection we have with the global body of Christ, because there are family in Christ, 
The author of Hebrews and the Apostle Paul tell us that we are to have an identification with the persecuted church. We are to put ourselves in their shoes and, and, and help support them and encourage them. It's almost as if there's a family responsibility that we have. And so this morning, I think the big question for us is how do we support the persecuted church? How do we kind of plug in and overcome our indifference and begin to really see the world the way God does? And so that's the question uh, I'm going to try to answer for us. And I want to suggest to you four different ways that you and I can support the persecuted church. Four ways that we can encourage and support the persecuted church. The first one is this, pray for them. 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes, We continually mention you in our prayers, and we also thank God continually, because when you received the word which you heard from us, you suffered from your own people, the same things that the churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets who also drove us out. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying that him and his team are continually, every single day, lifting up this persecuted church in Thessalonica and asking God that he would intercede and help out for them. And it's interesting because when we read the prayers of Paul in Scripture, one of the things that we find is he prays specific things for specific churches. Let me say that again. He prays specific things for specific churches, especially when it comes to the persecuted church. So up on the screen here, uh, you can see uh, a few examples of some of the specific things he prays for the persecuted church. He prays that God will give them the right words to say. He prays that, they will, that God's power will be displayed in their weakness. Paul prays that they would strain towards Christ's second coming and learn to trust Christ more. And finally, Paul prays for their physical protection and deliverance. And and the point I want you to see here is these are not just kind of vanilla, generic prayers, but they're specific, pointed prayers. And when our prayers, like Paul's, are specific, they have power and effectiveness, and they could change things in the world. God uses our prayers to advance his global mission and to support the persecuted church. It's kind of like a light bulb. You know, when you go into your house and you flip on the light switch and the light just diffuses in your room, what is happening is that light is being diffused and it illuminates, but if you take that same light and you focus it and you focus it and you focus it enough, you could turn that light into a laser that could cut through steel. And similarly, when our prayers are focused and when we are in tune with the heartbeat of God, when we are aware of what is going on on a global scale and we harness that and we pray specific prayers for the nations and specific prayers for missionaries and people imprisoned and people being beaten in the streets for their faith and people being ostracized by their communities and businesses, there's effectiveness and power and God uses that in tremendous ways. So our prayers can have a real effect on persecuted believers. But here's the other thing. They could also have a real effect on those who are doing the persecuting. On those who are doing the persecuting. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 44, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. So Jesus tells us here that we are to pray for and to love our enemies. We are to lift them up into prayer and to ask that our worst enemies will become our best friends. That our worst enemies will become our best friends. But I think for many of us, at least if you're like me, this is sometimes very difficult because when we think about our enemies, the first reaction many times is to wish the worst for them. Maybe it's to hate them, to wish things would go bad. 
But Paul is telling us to do the exact opposite. But the ironic thing is we understand this from the, the other way around. So for example, all of us understand that our best friends can become our worst enemies, right? Many of you have experienced betrayal at some point of your life where somebody you were really close to, someone you loved, kind of stabbed you in the back and it hurt and they became your worst enemies, the, the Judases that we've all had at some point in our life. And what Paul is telling us and what scripture is telling us is the opposite is true, is that people do change and by the grace of God, our adversaries can, can become advocates and our worst enemies can become our best friends. That, our Paul, that the Saul's in our life can be transformed into Paul's. This is the meaning of the gospel. This is why Jesus Christ came to earth, isn't it? He came to earth to turn foes into friends, to take people who disobeyed God, who didn't want to have anything to do with him, and to bring them into a love relationship with him. And eventually, we know that there will be a day of judgment for the enemies of God. Justice will be served, but today is the day of salvation. And today is the day when Christ calls his church to intercede for the enemies of God, to pray for those who are persecuting the church and torturing the church, and to beg God for their salvation, that the scales of their eyes would be lifted so that like Paul, they can become gospel witnesses among the nations. So the first way you and I can, su can support the persecuted church is to pray for specific prayers for those who are enduring persecution and for those who are being persecuted. The second way we can support our brothers and sisters is to comfort them. It's to comfort them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Isn't that beautiful? Paul's saying here that you and I are called to be pipelines of comfort for other people who are in trouble and are suffering and are undergoing persecution. You and I are called to be pipelines of God's comfort to the world, to the nations, to our other brothers and sisters who are going through trouble. I heard a story last year about a pastor in North Korea, and for several years, uh, this pastor was locked in a four-by-five concrete cell. He was given no place to sit. He was beaten almost daily. And eventually, this pastor came to a place where he was ready to give up. He was ready to break. He was ready to deny his faith and go home to his family. And then one day the Commodore came and brought him into his office. And the Commodore picked up a letter and slapped it on the table. And he said, who is this? This letter's addressed to you. How do you know them? And the North Korean pastor looked at him and he said, I don't know. And then the Commodore reached down and he picked up a basket of letters and poured them on the table. And, the, and, and a bunch of them just fell off the table. And at that moment, the pastor realized that these letters were from believers all across the world encouraging him, telling him, don't give up, you can do it. We're praying for you, hold on, be steadfast. And at that moment, the pastor was just filled with this tremendous sense of hope and peace and love and courage. And he was able to go back into his cell and to serve for a few more years until he was released. Are there ways that we can become pipelines of comfort for the persecuted church? Uh, in the back after the service today, we're going to have a prison letter writing kits where you could actually read profiles of prisoners around the world and send them letters. Maybe that's one way you could do it. 
Maybe you could pray with your family and your kids tonight that God would bring comfort and his presence to those who are enduring persecution in other places. And for a few of you, maybe you could even have the opportunity to visit persecuted missionaries and persecuted Christians in other places of the world. Third, we can learn from them. We could sit at the feet of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other places who are enduring persecution, and we can learn from them. And there's many things we can learn from them, but I think one of the deepest things we can learn is found in Acts 7 and 8. If you remember in Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death for his faith. He becomes the first martyr in the, Christ, in the Christian church. And then in Acts 8.1, Luke tells us what happens next. Luke writes, on that day, the day Stephen was martyred, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all the peoples were scattered throughout all of Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed, or lame, or healed. So there was a great joy in that city. You see what's happening here? When Jesus is resurrected, he gives his disciples the great commission. It's in Matthew 28. He tells them to go into the whole world, into every people group, and to make disciples. And he repeats something very similar in Acts 1.8, where he tells uh, his disciples to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. But for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, for some reason, the disciples don't get this, and they just kind of stay in this holy huddle where they just keep to themselves and they don't break out of the city. And in order to send them on mission, in order for, for the gospel to go forth, what happens is a martyrdom. And it was a result of that persecution, they're scattered. And so the principle I want us to get here is that God uses persecution to advance his gospel and his kingdom. God uses persecution to advance his gospel and his kingdom. Uh, this was certainly the case in the early church. Uh, some of you might have heard of Tertullian. He was an early church father uh, who wrote defending the church. And in 197, he wrote a letter, a very courageous letter, uh, to the Roman governor in the province where he lived. And uh, in this letter, he defended Christians, and he said that the persecution that they were enduring was unjust, that actually they were uh, loyal uh, subjects of the state. But at the end of the letter, he notes that persecution was failing to destroy Christianity. Here's what he says. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. Therefore, God allows that we thus suffer. The more often you mow us down, the more we grow. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. And for the first 300 years of church history, that was the motto. Because for the first 300 years of Christianity, the Christian religion was uh, outlawed. And it was persecuted. And people were crucified upside down and kicked out of states and fired from their jobs because of their faith in Christ. But what happened is the pagan world watched on as these men, women, boys, and girls stayed faithful to their Christ. 
And they knew that something was different. They knew that there was something not just worth living for, but also something worth dying for, and they wanted that. And so that sparked a great revival all across the empire. And the reason for this is because God uses persecution to advance his gospel and his kingdom. He did that 2,000 years ago, and he still does that today. In China, there's been spiritual revival for the past 60 years. In 1949, there was an estimated 2 million Christians in that country. And then for the next 60 years, under severe persecution, under a communist regime, the church grew from 2 million in 1949 to 103 million today. And again, the reason for that is because God uses persecution to advance his gospel and his kingdom. I met a missionary uh, a few months ago, and he was telling me that in September, uh, the supporters of the ousted President Morsi began protesting in the streets of Cairo. And they burned down over 30 churches, and they started persecuting the believers and the Orthodox Church there. And in response, the Pope of the Coptic Orthodox Church released a statement where he said that if burning down churches was what it took to show the Egyptians God's love for them in Christ, then they would gladly sacrifice all of their buildings. And that that began to resonate with the church there. And churches began putting up signs in front of their churches, saying, you burned down our church, but we love you anyway. And the number one priority for this united church in Egypt and around Cairo was praying for their Muslim brothers and sisters to know Christ. And and in response to that, what we're seeing now, at least at a grassroots level, is revival happening. Muslims are coming to Christ, and Bibles are being distributed, and miracles are being reported all over Egypt. And the reason for that is because God uses persecution to advance his gospel and his kingdom. It's not that persecution is good. It's not that we should pray for persecution. It isn't good. In fact, Scripture tells us in many places that it's demonic. But God has an interesting way, a miraculous way of taking tragedies and turning them into triumphs. The final thing that we could do to support the persecuted church is to join them. In Matthew 28, a passage most of us are familiar with, Jesus says this to his disciples. All authority, every ounce of authority in this cosmos, in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, this is what I want you to do. Go! And make disciples of all nations or all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And if this makes you a little nervous, and if you don't feel gifted, and if you don't feel good enough, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. The job description of the church, the job description of you and me is very simple. It's to make disciples in all nations. It's to make disciples in Chandler, in Arizona, in Saudi Arabia, in Colombia. That's our job description, till Christ comes back. And the reason for that is because the gospel is good news for all people. It's because Christ is king of the entire universe. And so we are called simultaneously to make disciples here and make disciples there. It's not not one or the other, it's a both and. The idea here is that we are global Christians sent on a global mission by a global God. And so when it comes to global missions, friends, all of us are either goers or we're senders or we're disobedient. 
Some of you are goers. As I've been praying about this for the past week, I have been convinced in my heart that there's people at Hope Covenant Church, maybe in this room, that are called by God to go to the nations, to go to somewhere where Christ isn't already known, to, like Paul, make it their ambition to preach Christ where he is not already known, to be a pioneer for the gospel. I'm not just talking about short-term mission trips. I think we should all do that. What I'm talking about is long-term career missionary service in the nations, and I believe that some of you have that calling on your life. Maybe you're feeling a little bit restless lately, and God is stirring something in you, maybe even today, and making you hungry and thirsty for this task of making him famous among all nations. Maybe he's given you an opportunity to transfer your job to another country where there is a much smaller church and much less Christians and a smaller gospel presence, and you are slowly being loosened from your roots to make that move to make Christ known where he's not already known. For others of you, maybe you're coming towards retirement, or maybe you just got a ton of money, and you could leave here, and you could move somewhere else, and live pretty well, and support other missionaries, or join a mission agency, and, and become a witness for Christ, where he is not already known. Some of you are called to this, and this is a holy vocation, and if you even think that maybe this is something for you, I would encourage you to talk to Dwayne or myself, and I promise you that if it's from God, Hope Covenant Church will do whatever it takes to support you and to see that dream become a reality. Jesus tells us that we need more workers. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need more workers in the nations. We need to be sending more missionaries. For the rest of us, God has called you and me to be financial backers and prayer warriors. He calls us to pray without ceasing for the global church. He calls us to earn as much as we can so that we can give as much as we can. He calls us to live simply and to give lavishly. And so the question I want all of us to ask is, how is God calling you to support his global church and the persecuted church today? I heard a story the other day uh, about... So missionaries from Great Britain, and, and then they, they, they traveled from Great Britain 150 years ago to northeast India to preach the gospel. And uh, the region that they went to was called Assam, and there was a bunch of aggressive tribes, and it was very hostile territory. And after a lot of work, a Welsh missionary led to Christ a man, his wife, and their two kids. And, and their, their conversion soon spread throughout the entire village, angering the leader of that tribe, the chief. And so what the chief did is he summoned this man before the entire tribe, and he was trying to force him to renounce his faith or die. And facing this crucial decision, the man looked at the chief and before the entire village said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And then the chief was ticked. And he ordered that this guy's kids be killed. And then he came right back after the man. He said, we just killed your kids. Now will you renounce your faith? The man looked at him and he said, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. And, and the chief was even more angry. And this time, he asked that the wife be killed. And then he comes back at the men again, and for a final time, he said, I will give you one more chance to deny your faith and live. You have no one else left in this world. What are you going to do? And the man looked at the chief, and before the entire village, with, with tears streaming down his face, said, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, 
no turning back. And, and eventually in that village, that chief and that entire village became Christ followers because of their courage and because of their witness. They didn't know it at the time. They were just simply being faithful to what God called them to do. They were simply being faithful to their Christ and to their king. And they will be rewarded for that in the new creation. And and that tragedy and the tragedy of Christian persecution across the world is not something that God allows lightly. But we serve a God who is able to take tragedies and turn them into triumphs, who is able to take advocates and turn them, er, adversaries and turn them into advocates. We serve a God who is very powerful and is able to accomplish a lot of things. And he did that 150 years ago in northeast India. And he does that today, each and every day, in and through the persecuted church all over the world. And what my encouragement and my challenge is you today is to join that mission. We are called to support and to encourage and to love our brothers and sisters in other nations and to help advance the gospel until Christ comes again. Will you please pray with me?